Hi everyone, welcome to Landing 2022. This is Art and Market's third annual conference following Pivot in 2020 and Landing 2021. My name is Ian T, and I'm Associate Editor at Art and Market or ANM. Landing continues the conversation from our annual publication Check It. The title Landing signifies arrival following flight, but it is also the level area between two flights of stairs, where we take a moment to consider how far we have come and how we're going to go forward. As we adapt to the new normal moving out of the valley of the COVID-19 pandemic, how have art practitioners persevered and continued to innovate? The conference continues to celebrate the community's diversities, determination, and experimentations. This is the first panel discussion where we try to answer the question, how can translation shift cultural discourses? Translation plays an increasingly pivotal role in knowledge building. It opens up worldviews embedded in language, providing access to different histories and communities. In this panel, three practitioners discuss how translating local texts can challenge current paradigms of understanding, as well as their approaches to finding new ones. Before we begin, I would like to thank everyone for spending the next 45 minutes with us. If you have a question to ask a panelist, you can type it out anytime in the Q&A box at the bottom of your screen, and we'll get to them during the Q&A segment later. And today I'm very pleased to be speaking to three practitioners from the region, and now I'd like to invite you to um, switch on your videos, and I'll introduce you to everyone. We have Hung, who is a translator, writer, and curator. Tu Win Mio, a translator and writer. Vanessa Mo, lecturer at Konggan University. All right, um, let's just begin with the conversation now. And um, as a way of introducing, could you each briefly introduce yourself and also speak about your current research interests? Maybe we start with you, Hung. Um, okay, thank you. Uh, thank you, Ian and Art and Market for organizing this panel and inviting translators from the region to come together. I think it's a very um, wonderful opportunity to work with all of you. Um, so as Ian briefly mentioned, I am a translator, writer and story curator currently based in Saigon or Ho Chi Minh City, Vietnam. Um, I'm mostly curious about like um, the topic of intertextuality in translation. So how can we convey, transport, and transform one form of text into another and vice versa, and how translation becomes a mode of being when taken into a specific socio-political and historical context? Um, my current interests include um, botanical art history in Vietnam and Southeast Asia and the role of translation in regional art history. Oh, sorry about that. Yeah, what about you too, and Vanessa? Hello, everyone. I am Tulemu from Myanmar, and I'm writer and translator, and also an imagined filmmaker. My research interests usually deal with uh, post-colonialism and literary theory. Okay. Previously, I have published uh, a glossary on post-colonialism in Burmese in 2019. And uh, so far, I have uh, made uh, two short films. And uh, I'm also like a starring at the developmental early filmmaking industry in colonial Burma. 
And it is interesting for me to observe how leading film companies of the time in Burma followed the dice or the political dice of the time. And eventually the film industry itself became a propaganda machine for the state. Yeah. Thank you for Adam Market for inviting me and to meet and connect with these uh, like outstanding people from the region. Thank you. Thank you too. And Vanessa, you're speaking to us from your university right now, are you? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I'm with Vanessa. Nice to meet everyone. Um, and uh, I say my my research interest. I have to admit, I'm quite new in the research field because I used to teach English uh, where we didn't really have to do research. And um, so, but I did do um, a thesis on alcohol and gender in Thai Isan songs, which is the songs from Northeast Thailand. Um, so I guess I could say that my research interest is really about gender and uh, especially women um, and feminism uh, and how that plays into translation, what we translate and um, yeah, this kind of thing. <laughs> I'll end All right. there. And I think um, at this point, I'd like to also perhaps invite each of you to, I have a few questions for each of you to where we kind of discuss and highlight some of the points that you have brought up in each of your um, essay contributions. So I think Vanessa will get back to Isan at, um, at, at a later point where I have two questions for you regarding the text that you have written. And perhaps we'll just start with you, Hung. And in your essay, you wrote about your personal journey translating um, the text art critique from Vietnamese to English. In particular, you focused on the collaborative process, working with your mentor, Claudine Ang, to refine the translated text. So I have two questions for you. Firstly, why did you decide to translate this essay in particular? And secondly, could you talk about the criteria that the two of you used to judge or guide the quality of your translation? Um, thank you, Ian. Um, so regarding the first question, so the text that I chose was Fibbing uh, It, which is translated into art critique by uh, an artist as well as a art, art writer um, in the southern part of Vietnam called Thái Tuấn. Um, so I personally was born in Hanoi, so the northern part of Vietnam. So as you all might know about the history of Vietnam, so how the north and the south became unified after 1975. Um, the art and literature of the south has largely been erased or rewritten in, to fit into certain nationalistic paradigms after the reunification. So when I moved down south in 2015, when I came back to Vietnam in 2015, it was a relearning process for me to uncover all of the names and stories and histories of artists and art critics in the past, this part of my country. So when I came across the writing of Thái Tuấn, I found his essays emblematic of his time. So it reflects not only a nuanced perspective on painting, but also a breadth of intellectual thinking that reflects Southern Vietnam pre-1975. So a period that we would call um, a Renaissance period where there's a lot of individual thinkers, there's a lot of interaction and exchange between intelligence. Um, um, so, so relearning and, or should I say unlearning, became the impetus for me to choose Thái Tuấn and his writing 
for the Isaac Angjun Fellowship with Saudis of Now. So that, and also there's not enough translation of original Vietnamese texts in art texts in general. We have scholars from around the world writing about us, yet our own writers rarely made it into the global discourse. So this is an act of introduction or intrusion into that narrative um, to con conjure Taipan's voice in English. So that's why I chose this text. Um, as we got to the second question, so the collaborative process between me and Claudine, it's we share a lot of similar criteria in translation. So mostly we would say seamlessness. So whether it sounds natural to our ears or not, because I'm a native Vietnamese speaker and she, you know, grew up speaking and learning English in Singapore. So it's a very, it's a con compare and contrast process for both of us. Um, and clarity, so whether it's like grammatically and factually cohesive, because as translator, we have to juggle between different sets of grammars with the languages that we choose. Um, so as long as we make that sound, um, it, it has to sound effortless, you know, instead of being, instead of too much of a, effortless in the sense that it, it draws you in and it doesn't bar you from trying to understand or trying to learn more about the content. So I guess we carry these personal criteria into our collaborative translations. And one interesting thing that we did was reading the English translation out loud to one another. Um, so I would read the, the, I would read my translation and then she would read the part that she edited or she thinks needs uh, some more work done. So turning the written text the written translation into an audio form. And that really helps with assessing the natural flow of the text and whether something sounds right or not. Um, so I guess like those two criteria, seamlessness and clarity and just a natural flow to the translation were what we prioritize in our uh, collaborative process. Yeah. All right, thank you. And uh, speaking about the kind of audio form and collaboration, I think this is a perfect segue for me to go back to you, Vanessa. Um, in the essay that you and people con contributed to check in, the both of you argued for the value of translating a form of song, which is performed in Laos and Isan. Yet the first challenge to translating Isan is that there's virtually no written language. So continuing this discussion about processes, could you talk about how the two of you went about recording and then translating the song? Yeah, um, so generally for the Isan language, what people will do is uh, trans transliterate, I guess, it into the Thai language, write it um, with Thai language. And so um, that's what we had to do first. And um, there is actually a, an initiative to try to get more people to learn and use the, the script of Tai Noi in Isan, um, which is T-A-I and then N-O-I, uh, but it's not very well known. And um, most people you know, still can't read Tai Noi or they don't even know about this effort to get that into a written script because it might be closer to the tones and the pronunciation of Isan language. Um, but generally people are used to um, the transliteration of Isan into Thai. So, so that's what we do first. And uh, you know, luckily Pikun is Isan, knows Isan language and everything. So she's very helpful there. And, um, and then 
she also helped me with my thesis, I should say, because in that time we were translating, we were translating songs, uh, but only for a utilitarian purpose. Uh, but you know, for every, I was just trying to learn the Ison as we went along. So she really had to help me a lot with that as well. And with um, this Molam, I would say every line, <laughs> every line of the song needed some explanation of like, we had to have a discussion about what it, how we would try to convey this in English, even just with a messy translation that doesn't sound good. Um, so that's, that was our next step is going through every line of the song. And I have to say it's still a work in progress because um, it, after that is putting it into, as, as uh, Hung was saying, um, we had to get it into a flow, right? A rhythm and everything like that and make it sound good. And I would say that for this, I need to have collaboration with uh, a Molam singer. <laughs> Not, so, so they have to be able to, you know, I can't sing it myself. And, um, and then the Molam singer has to be able to sing in English, which I, I know that um, the, the singer for this song is not very confident with English himself. <laughs> but so I think that would be the next step is collaborating with the, the singer to, you know, to figure out how we can get the song to flow better, to, to actually produce it as an English version song. Yeah. You have spoken about that rhythm and the kind of nuances in the translation. I'm wondering, are there particular aspects that are especially difficult to capture in the translation? And what are perhaps some of the methods or best practices that you have come across to overcome these challenges? Because it is a performative um, form of text, where it's not just being read, but you know the, the performative aspect is also very much an important um, element to the entire song. Yeah. Um... And I think that the important thing is, first of all, to, to consider the purpose of the song. So, you know, I've been looking at like, Disney translates lots of English songs into Thai. And if you look at the translations for Disney, it's not, it's, it's not gonna be the same content at all, you know? So their purpose is to get it to, you know, for the audience to enjoy the song, to maybe get the general point, but it's not, the nuance doesn't have to be, I think they don't have to be so strict about the nuance. And so in this case, that's another thing that I think um, is important to talk about with the, the, the singer or the artist, him or herself, is what, what is the purpose of translating it? What do you want the English listening audience to get from this song? You know, Is it um, to learn more about Isan culture or to, is it a song to write history or to make history or to record history. Um, and so I think in, in terms of best practices, I would say it's really important to collaborate in that way and to uh, figure out the purpose. And then when it comes to the nuances, I can, I, I can give you an example of one of the nuances just in one line, like every line has so many <laughs> nuances, I would say that are difficult to translate. But one was, which literally would mean um, my country has, but gu uh, is like um, I, but it's kind of a, it's an Isan word, but it's generally considered kind of impolite in Thailand. And um, it actually comes from a song written by a, a rap group, Rap Against Dictatorship, about four years ago. 
So there's this intertextuality right there, like referencing a song um, from four years ago, but but in general now in Thailand, Protect Bumi just means I have, uh, my, con my country has a lot of bad things. <laughs> so, so yeah, that's kind of the thing that I'm talking about, a lot of referencing other things and that kind of thing. I just think that dodging all of that um, political loopholes, it's very difficult and pretty amazing what you're doing. Kudos to you and the singer. We'll see. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of um, taboo. There's a lot of taboo things in Thailand. So there's so much uh, nuance to try to get around those taboos and, and talk about those issues, whether it's politics or religion or, you know, talking bad about anyone, but much less the politicians. So. And two, in your essay, it takes on um, a macro perspective and looks at the impact of translation on Burmese art and literature. You connect the, the topic with issues such as you know, intellectual property, as well as the relationship between language and nation building, which is also something that you have brought up, um, Vanessa, in your essay. So one, term in, uh, one challenge that you wrote about is the lack of non-Buddhist terminology, which at times impede the development of nuanced translations. So to I have a question for you, which is, um, are there successful instances or perhaps instances that you view as successful where art-related texts or theoretical ideas are translated without using words from the Buddhist canon? And how did these translators achieve that? I think usually translators and writers who wanted to use non-Buddhist or more secularized words find it difficult uh, to have a concise word. So for, for us, uh, like uh, who usually translate those uh, theoretical terms, uh, we use the uh, trans translated version and by combining like uh, sometimes uh, an, an English word in translated version with the Burmese one like by combining two different words in translator version. But for the Burmese word part, we use the Burmese, uh, like a, the real Burmese, you know, like a word. But for the English words part, we use the translator song, you know, just to convey this, uh, the original word. And so, so it's like a, for theoretical term, I usually use two or more combined words, you know, that kind of way, and Burmese to convey the most meaning of the original word, for example. And 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 so in in the case of theoretical transition, uh, we usually choose uh, words from daily life environment to evade, uh, like uh, using the Buddhist terms or Bali, for example, uh, which was uh, very familiar. We've seen in the in the academic literature in the last uh, sixty or seventy years, or more than you know, uh, more than that 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 longer than that period, I, I, I suppose. And and when I compiled a, a glossary of post-colonial study book four years ago, uh, I choose a, a concise and shorthand word for each term, but also put some kind of detail explanation in brackets to, to, you know, like to explain more about uh, uh, 
new concept with their origins and like etymology for SMS sometimes, and also example of uh, the usage in brackets, I mean, like uh, to make it more clear. Uh, and also like uh, there's uh, some writers who just uh, use translator word for new uh, theoretical terms. They will use, uh, for instance, uh, post-colonialism or post-colonial studies, uh, like, uh, and also like uh, there's also just uh, translated terms and concept include like uh, a queer, for example, lesbian, carnivalesque, diaspora, modern, modernity, uh, to name a few, you know, like uh, we use the uh, chocolate, coffee, and, you know, like a smartphone in our daily life, uh, uh, yeah. And yeah, so, and later on, like uh, sometimes we use a uh, uh, Buddhist term, like uh, we can really avoid sometimes from using Buddhist term, like Bali, uh, because uh, some some of the uh, words like uh, that were used in in academic literature like curriculum were like uh, already accepted in Bali like a uh, basic terms like logic in in Bali yoti for example that was a uh, long already used and uh, well accepted in academic literature and also in curriculum so so that kind of basic terms. In philosophy, we usually use uh, like uh, in in edit, it was accepted so far, you know. So that's how we usually like uh, mm, like uh, usually achieve uh, that, that kind of accepted way, and sometimes we can also invent or uh, like uh, extend the the usage, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. And I think at this point, I'd like to um, remind all the audiences tuning in that you can um, leave any questions you have for a specific panelist or for all of our speakers in the Q&A box section, and we'll get to them very quickly. Um, at this point, I also like to move the conversation beyond the academic sphere and discuss how the work of translation can shift discourses in politics and popular culture. I think um, this is perhaps most um, urgently explored in the case of um, Vanessa and Pico's essay, where the politics of Molam has real-world um, implications. For audiences who are perhaps not familiar with the political situation in Thailand, Vanessa, could you elaborate a little bit more on this? Sure. Um, I'll try to be concise um, by, by looking at three parts. One is the history, really briefly, is for more than a hundred years, Thailand has been, uh, I mean, over almost a hundred years, I should say, since, since 1932, when there was a, a move towards constitutional monarchy, um, Thailand has been kind of in this cycle of, of democracy, something resembling democracy, and then a coup, and then, a, and then uh, more like dictatorship, and, you know, democracy is always always, there seems to be an ending point that ends with a coup and a new uh, constitution. So there has been 18 coups and 18 constitutions, I believe, um, in the last 90 or so years. Um, and uh, and th those, of course, are, are accompanied with some crackdowns and, uh, and not any accountability for the, for the 
um, deaths that occur in those crackdowns. Sometimes they're called bloodless coups, but for example, in in uh, 1976, that's that's people nowadays are starting to um, to commemorate that that crackdown, which resulted in a lot of violence and um, and even like rap against dictatorship. Some of their imagery in the music video was of um, the man hanging from the tree and the people kind of clapping and cheering it on. So this this is kind of um, yeah the history and then. And then I was gonna, for the second part, I was like to say the, the Thai flag, if we look at the Thai flag, I think it sums it up pretty well because the Thai flag basic, basically symbolizes um, red for the nation or the blood from, from making the nation, which we could say is the military. Um, and then white for religion, which is supposed to be pure and it's basically Buddhism. And then uh, blue, which is for the monarchy and the king. And I would say this flag for me, for me and some others I've talked to really symbolizes the Thai patriarchy, which whether you're gonna talk about the, uh, the boot or the, the sandal or the dress shoe, it's like the boot or the dress sandal or the dress shoe is on our necks, right? Both whether you're a woman or a man or, or LGBTQ or anything. Um, so right now in the last, uh, the last coup was in 2014 and there has been a lot of uh, protests, especially by the youth youth movement. And there are three calls. Um, they're still calling for these three main points, which have lots of points underneath. But basically, uh, getting Prayut and his regime out of government, because you know we're supposed to be democracy now, but since Prayut came in, um, the constitution was changed so that basically he will his regime will stay in power. Uh, the second point is reforming the constitution. And then the third point would be reforming the monarchy to make sure that it's underneath the constitution and, and underneath the law. So I think that kind of sums it up. <laughs> and perhaps on a, a little bit of a lighter note, um, to in the beginning of your essay, you wrote about the demand for translations of popular fiction titles and how a popular translator of a prestigious um, piece of world literature often receives the same level of recognition as the original authors. I'm curious, is this scenario still the same today? And what accounts for this, perhaps, um, reception and perception of translators in Thailand and uh, in Burma? Yeah, it is still the same today, almost the same today, like uh, with the rise of the quicker uh, promotion through social, social media, uh, translator and writers, also publisher, can use the social media platform to, to like uh, uh, promote their ongoing publishing or like uh, the, the books to be published. Like uh, even some translator even like a post uh, like a uh, a stretch uh, like a piece of works from the ongoing translation on the social media post like uh, to to communicate with the audience in real time basics. And so that's uh, in a way like uh, to prevent uh, the other rival translator to, from like uh, translating the same test, you know, sometimes. And there's also like uh, some, some kind of like a uh, uh, proud for other or like a, how to say like a, to, to have more points from or trust from the reader. Some, some translator also like a, uh, 
show off uh, their language ability. Like uh, if, if someone is uh, translating dryly Kawabata from Japanese and they would like, uh, like underline this thing that uh, I am translating Kawabata from dryly from Japanese, not from English to Burmese, for example. So it's a uh, more like a, uh, how to say, mm, uh, more harder rivalry these days between the different translator for the same test sometimes. Yeah. So, but uh, it, it was uh, before the military coup. I mean, like uh, before all, all the all these uh, like uh, publishing units and publishing house can can readily like uh, uh, find the the material, especially the printing papers. Now the printing paper price is really high because of the inf inflation and because of the restriction on the import and export policy. So publisher cannot really like a, a keep a, enough, uh, you know, like a, a printing materials or printing papers because of the uh, fluctuation in the inf inflation, you know? So, so now people think, publisher think twice to, to decide uh, a test to be published. So also it also affects on the translator part, also for the writers to publish their works. So it's kind of a little bit harder now for, for the most of the uh, translator and writers. Yeah. Um, we have a, a question from the audience which kind of touches on this point and then tangentially and it's directed to um, all three of you. And the question goes, how do you stay afloat financially with translation work? Or perhaps if translation work doesn't put food on the table, what other types of um, work or jobs do you have to supplement um, your income as you continue with your research and translation work? Hung, perhaps would you want to take this question first? Um, sure. Uh, I, think, I think all of us translators are very well aware of how you know, limited financially the, the scene, the capacity for translation is, at least in the region and in Vietnam in particular. Um, so at least for me, I, I know that making a living by translation alone is impossible in the creative industries, unless you have like a trust fund waiting for you somewhere like that, it's not going to be the case. So, you know, we in the art scene and arts and culture scene and literature and translation, we tend to wear many hats and we make a living from a variety of income sources. Um, in a way, I mean, personally, it works out for me because I benefit from working in different capacities and shifting from one project to another. So be it writing, translating, curating, researching, or art dealing, etc. So I constantly translate between different modes so whether it's working independently or within like an institutional framework, um, what really matters, I think, is, you know, besides the finance and the money that you're going to get, which, you know, sometimes might not be a lot, might not be put on the table, but what really matters is that you know why you're doing what you're doing. Um, and if you know the why, then you can figure out the house that you are most comfortable with. And our only chance, at, at least from my perspective, I think our only chance at a sustainable income, it's like multi-source branching and cross-pollination with people from other disciplines. Um, I think a collective approach to a financial models for translators uh, should definitely be 
taken into account before anyone goes into this profession, particularly in the region of Southeast Asia. We'd love to hear yes. from we'd love to hear from everyone else how you're doing financially. <laughs> yes. Previously, like many translators of my generation and also the writers uh, have uh, have uh, took back always in some kind of uh, projects, translation project or publication project from local uh, NGO and INGOs working in Myanmar. And and now there's uh, less like a uh, uh, official NGOs, public publication because of the political changes and developments in the last two years, you, are, you already know, you know. And I used to work as a translator, also for local art galleries and art event as a bilingual catalog writers. And sometimes research and researchers and as, as historian from foreign university uh, come to work through online with me. But usually those kind of uh, projects from abroad, uh, academic, like a subject related and history related projects, usually come through the acquaintance researcher I have previously worked with. So it's, it's kind of not really like a stable income and you know, like, a, like, like a home site. There's no finding like a working, uh, waiting, at the corner, right? Always. Yes. I like your expression of waiting around the corner. I think that's very emblematic of how we work as translators in the scene. <laughs> Just wanted to say that. Uh, yeah, I think from, I probably have a different perspective as, as someone in the university. So I'm actually part of Thailand bureaucracy, um, probably. <laughs> Uh, so, actually, this is one reason one of my my main experience with translation before this has been with um, translating academic abstracts or papers, and it's something that I found personally I really wish to go more into the art world, more into um, not just academic realm because, well, I have my re reasons for that, I guess, but um, and. So I'm, I'm, I'm paid, you know, like an income from that. But for, for my vision, I think, is to try to get more funding. Uh, right now, I'm thinking about this new center that my, my faculty set up. It's a center for um, gender studies. And it's just set up for the last year. So I'm thinking that I can, like, take, get, you know, propose some projects with them that include translation, especially for um, gender-related issues and and that kind of thing. So I think it's it's still similar because usually the the, the funding goes towards you know um, having a good face for the university. So I have a I have a colleague who just translated Judith Butler into Vietnamese. So I definitely think I should connect you guys and maybe you can do something between her university and your university because she is also working for an institution. So. Definitely, uh, you know, working under an institution umbrella does have its pros and cons, but as long as you can get what you want to do, that, Yeah, still learning how to do that. <laughs> that would be great though, thank you. Um, as a final question, I'm gonna combine um, a few questions that we have from the audiences into one, and uh, each of you can just answer to 
you know, whichever one that speaks to you the most or um, whichever you deem the most appropriate. So um, it has to do with what, what motivated each of you to get into translation work, firstly. And the second question is, um, has to do with audience and if you have particular audience or audiences in mind as you translate a text. So whether it's um, English speakers in the West, local English speakers, or perhaps um, people in the academic community and institutions that you are working with. So, um, yeah. And oh, and we have one, one last one from um, Roger Nelson. Uh, he has a question for everyone. And um, are there other translators translating to English whose work you find inspiring? And what do you find inspiring about your work? So yeah, feel free to plug your colleagues and friends who are doing the great work out there. I, I can go first. Um, if everyone needs time to think. Um, I think for, for translation, it, it is, and when you talk about audience, are we talking about the audience of the intended text? So the text was written in a specific time, a specific context, um, a specific audience for that text as well. For example, with Taiwan's text, he was talking to a crowd of intellectual slash semi-public audience in Vietnam post-1975, pre-1975. So there's a specific set of people who would read that text at that time. So what I find helpful sometimes uh, as a translator, it's actually to look at the intended audience of the text when it was written and perhaps not the audience that I'm aiming at when I'm doing the translation at the moment. And sometimes that helps direct the way I translate and the tone that I use or the language that I would choose. So for the text of Python, I particularly chose the audience that the text was intended for when it was written. So it's, you know, like, partially academic, partially artistic, but also he also, his language is also very open towards, you know, public engagement as well. So people who might not be that well-versed in like artistic terminology can also chime in. Um, there's a lot of things there that everyone can just kind of nibble at and digest at their own space. So I think that's, that, uh, that's about the, the process of, you know, audience and who are you speaking to, who are you talking to? Um, yeah, I think that's, that's, that's that for me. Um, I don't know, I'm curious to hear from the other, from two and, and Vanessa, what do you guys think? Yes, uh, for, for me, uh, I, I was pretty late uh, when I read uh, uh, literature in other language, especially in English. Like uh, in my, only in my early 20s, I started to read all literature in English. So previously, I only read translated books, and those I suppose those were limited. First, in 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 the case of literature, they were end up like most of the translated books or translated war literature in Burmese were end up in the like a late 1960 or something, and in the philosophical and academic sphere. And only Buddhism and Marx, Marxism were prevalent, you know, like in translation. So, so when I when I start to learn English, I I find it uh, very rare to study or to read, uh, like uh, for example, in in the aesthetics, formalism is uh, the 
the end of your study in, in Burmese in the, in the university, curriculum, for example, like a university, English literature department in university, they, they have uh, the highest, uh, uh, you know, like a subject or like area of sphere to study for aesthetics and formalism. And there's no post-structuralism or structuralism in that part if you want to read in Burmese. So I, I start to feel like uh, if I want to read this kind of a new concepts, idea and ideas and uh, subjects in English, like uh, I, I want, I, I need to learn myself. I need to read first in English. And so when I became a translator, I also like uh, trying to translate those literatures or literature related things that I always wanted to read in Burmese when I was young, yeah. That's how I became translator. And this is the, the, I think the first motivated thing that what I, that I want to create what I don't have, what I expected to have when I was young, yeah. When I became translator. Uh, I, maybe I'll talk about um, who, who I find inspiring. Uh, there's one person, Pira Songkunnatam, who, who also uh, comes from the Isan, Northeast Thailand region, and they are a writer and translator. And um, so, and they've also translated um, some Molam as well. So that's kind of inspired me to start looking into it as, as well as my friend Pikun. And um, I'm gonna put the name in the chat box and the uh, one place they, they Publish some writing is Asymptote Journal. Uh, so I'll put that website in a moment. And then another, um, another interesting, well, it's, it's not really translator, but they, they translate, yeah. Um, Isan, Isan Record is a kind of a, a Northeast region um, news organization that I like to follow, and they, they do translation of other articles tied to English. And then I also saw that. Um, they, they translated a little bit of Molam by a, a really old woman uh, who was singing. And, and um, you know, that was, that was some recording of history about some rebellions that happened like 120 years ago um, in, in the Isan region. And uh, it was just amazing to see that, cause you know, all that history, it hasn't been commemorated on the national level or, or formally. Um, so it's just kind of amazing to see that passed down so long that this old woman can still sing the song and, and maybe they don't even understand all the words. So like, it's so important to put our resources into these people, you know, the humans, because they are the textbooks of the local cultures. And um, so I really, I follow the Isan record too. So those are the two that I'll bring up. Um, I want to add to the inspiring as well as resources. So. The, so I'm currently on the editorial board for Art Republic Vietnam. Um, so it's a bilingual publication of Vietnamese and English on contemporary arts of Vietnam. So there's a lot of um, initiatives, recent initiatives that comes out of the, the art scene that address the issues of translations. Um, so I'll type the name in the chat box as well. So if anyone wants to um, check them out, you can. Um, I really would just want to shout out to all of my colleagues who are also working very hard, translating in their own terms, maybe not calling themselves a translator, but translator is a big part of their 
work as a curator, as a director, as a art as an artist as well. Um, so people, um, some Lithuanian from you know who's based in Hanoi. There's um, other people who are also doing translation works. Just maybe they don't get the recognition that they should, but um, the, all the work that they're doing is still very valuable. Which is all of my colleagues in in the art scene in Vietnam. Thank you so much for your sharing and we'll be sure to include um, the references that you have shared in, in the article that um, listeners can expect on Art and Market very soon. Um, unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. So thank you to everyone for spending the last 45, 50 minutes with us and thank you to Hung, Tu and Vanessa for the conversation and also for your contributions to check-in. Um, if you'd like to catch all the other panel discussions that are happening as part of Landing 2022, please visit um, the microsite artandmarket.net slash landing-2022. Landing continues the conversations from our annual publication check-in. Uh, the e-version is free for all to read on artandmarket.net slash check-in-2022. There's also a limited print run of check-in 2022. Um, you can use the discount code on the screen right now to receive a 15% off your order. And this is gonna last until the 7th of July. So we really appreciate it if you could consider purchasing a physical copy of the publication, which would go towards programming at AM, such as the panel discussion you have attended today. Um, thank you to everyone and we'll see you soon.